0: For the 4.30 movie. The 4.30 movie podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Best movies never made as featured in entertainment weekly is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free electric now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed gross and me, Mark A. Altman have a new oral history from St. Martin's press. It's secrets of the force, the complete uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the force and don't miss our oral history of star trek in stores now and of course nobody does it better the complete oral history of james bond in digital hardcover paperback and audio that is all Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the inglorious Trexperts. And yes, we know it was a long road getting from there to here, to here. From here to there, whatever. I didn't I never saw Patch Adams. What can I say? And uh, <laughs> but we're going to go back to the very the very beginning as our series of um, Bible study Continues. That sounds uh, that sounds really boring. It's like
3: Tonight, the small catechism.
0: But uh, but we're gonna go back, and we're gonna we're gonna plumb uh, uh, look for uh, do the Talmud. We're gonna look for meaning in the Bible. And uh, this week we're gonna be uh, doing Star Trek Enterprise. And uh, to do that, we have some very special guests. We have a uh, newly minted Trek expert, Ashley Edward Miller, straight from uh, his uh, Dota uh, Dragons Blood a TV show on Netflix. To uh, your home, talking Star Trek. Welcome, Ashley Miller. Thank you. I am as excited as ever to be a minty fresh, Trexper. And uh, joining us today is a man who was there when this Bible first came out of the mimeograph machine. No, probably not mimeograph. the mimeograph machine. By then, they were gone. Mimeograph machines were gone. right off the printer. So uh, it's uh, you the know the fax machine. Right off the fast machine, exactly. Uh, writer, producer uh, from uh, Enterprise. Uh, it wasn't Star Trek Enterprise yet. Co-creator uh, of the hit TNT series Perception, and a frequent guest here on the program, Mr. Michael Sussman. Welcome
1: back, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. It's good to see you guys.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, we love we love bringing people together during the pandemic. I, I, uh, you know, see more people on Zoom than I see in person, so. Uh, this is exciting. But before we begin our trek, our look back at Enterprise, there's some housekeeping business we need to take care of. Housekeeper. The Quezat Satterat, the housekeeper. <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> the housekeeper. Uh, I wonder if uh, Denny, Denny Villeneuve will have that great piece of writing in his version of Dune. Uh, I know Linda Hunt won't show up for 30 seconds. Right. Um, how about that Linda Hunt story that Joe D'Augusta told a couple of weeks back? That was Hunt pretty cool. That was was pretty
2: great. Go back and Uh, listen to our Joe D'Augusta episode to hear that story.
0: All you Year of Living Dangerously fans. Yeah, I know that story. And I ain't no band leader. It was a great story. So, uh, and speaking of Joe D'Augusta, he's going to be at the Skirball Center here in Los Angeles. But not just Joe. On Saturday, November 6th, Darren Docterman and I will both be uh, uh, joined by uh, Scott Mance talking about balance of terror and arena on the big screen at the Star Trek exhibit at the Scribble. But I keep hearing people, fans of the show and guests, they're like, What day are you guys speaking? I tell them, and they said, Well, we're coming down with a few of our guys. And I'm like, <laughs> Okay.
5: <laughs> right.
0: Let's well, take you out and back, teach you a lesson. So even though it's. Stop it says... talking about politics. <laughs> I'll get to that. So even though. <laughs> It's just uh, you know us on the uh, on the menu or whatever it's a, on the schedule. And there, I think there's going to be a lot of cool people coming down, uh, just because not to see us, but to see uh, um, the the Star Trek episodes on the big screen. Um, and you know, the whole no. day is just filled with uh, uh, Trek excitement. Us. Mark, with not, the...
5: for
0: <laughs> yeah, not, not for us. Yeah, not for us. But uh, this simple feeling. Uh, <laughs> And you'll have for Mike and Denise uh, Kuda, who'll be there. And, of course, um, later in the day, Brent Spiner and Denise Crosby. But, uh, um, you know, I uh, just this week, I'm not going to say who, but uh, called me up and said, what time are you guys going on on November 6th? I said, I have no idea. I went to the website. I looked. I still have no idea. I just know we're the first ones at bat. We're like Casey. first at bat. los primeros. Yeah. So, anyway, we hope you'll join us. It's to be fun. The Skirball is a, a nonprofit organization, so uh, it's it's wonderful to support them. They've done great exhibits in the past. Uh, so, is Darren, the glorious
2: trexperts, by the way, yeah, not yeah, officially yeah. but ah,
0: that that brings me to our next uh, our next subject. So, listen, uh, I I find this. I have to bring this up, Darren. Yes. Uh, you know, we've gotten a, a bunch of people who said. You know I don't like uh, you know uh, when you're bad bad mouthing uh, Star Trek three and I'm not going to listen to the podcast anymore. Okay, great. Then
3: let listen to it again.
0: Then we've heard. Then then we get this stuff about uh you guys uh, clearly uh, you're not fans of uh, that new trek. Uh, I don't think you are. You occasionally make snide comments, but don't really talk about it. You you know and that's gatekeeping and you really shouldn't be doing it.
3: Okay. Then yeah. this week we well, they, the latest. They, oh, didn't they, have, they, they didn't have much
2: TOS on Star Trek uh, Day either, so uh, I'm just leaving yeah. that out. There. Okay. okay, also, gates
0: g- won't keep themselves. Let, let me <laughs> let me finish. Let me yes, finish. go ahead. So, oh, and then the latest imbroglio, oh, uh, sure. um, uh, you know, uh, you guys, uh, you 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 took Shatner's side over George Decay on, uh, <laughs> on that big uh, dust up over him, uh, Shatner going to space and George yeah. being jealous. And I, I don't really think you guys should be picking sides. I want to make something very clear because all these three things have something in common. We are not Walter Cronkite. We, it is not our job to be impartial. Yeah. Okay. We are here to express our, our opinions. And honestly, we're all big enough to take a few insults. And if we're not, don't listen to the show. I've said this before. If you can't deal with someone who has a different opinion than yourself. You should not be listening to our show. Turn it off now. Don't listen. Even even amongst ourselves, we disagree sometimes. Darren That's doesn't not. like Star Trek six. Isn't that insane? It's That's, insane. It's What's insane. wrong with him? We Why don't are know. you still my friend? I'm going to stop. But we him. love him anyway. You know what, for the rest sometimes, of the time, I'm not talking to Darren anymore. Fine. I'm done with him. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I have nothing to say I'm to him. Done. I'm done. So how are you, Mike? <laughs> it, took Nixon, it took Nixon to go to would China you, would you like a spring I guess so <laughs> I guess that's how it happened
3: Ashley can you please tell Darren that, <laughs> would you like me to tell Darren <laughs> Darren Mark would like you to know something very important Mark what would you like him to know
0: let him know he's got to stop what is with people? I'm not going to bring in the whole Dave Chappelle thing because that's a whole another thing. But, you know, it's like, first of all, I, I want to be very, very clear. Uh, you know, we we just we celebrate the love. And 99% of the time we are about the love. If we occasionally say something, there's a reason for it. You know, and and and, and uh, the gatekeeping thing to me is, is, is and I have to say it's from a fan of the podcast. He wrote a very nice letter. I'm not I'm not singling you out. It's just because we've heard this a couple of times. Um, again, we have no obligation to be fair, to be balanced. We're like Fox News in that sense. You could totally lie and deceive and equivocate. Uh, no, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to, but I'm not I love then. Star Trek Insurrection. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, all those nemesis people aren't rushing to his defense though. Um, That's right. I just want to say, it's like, and, and you know what? I think the other thing I want to point out is regardless of what our opinions are, and I don't think we've really stated, yeah. we're here to talk about the Star Trek we love. Yeah. Obviously, that's the original Star Trek. Um, it's, it's Deep Space Nine, it's Next Generation. Um, to obviously, we're talking about Enterprise today. Um, and we've made a point of bringing on two wonderful guest hosts who, um, who, who clearly have a passion for other stuff and 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 we've been delighted to have them on the show and they they bring a different perspective and lisa, uh, in fact lisa and peter by name lisa and peter who've done a great job and in fact next week on the Sports briefing room an entirely different podcast um they're doing their first commentary on lower decks with uh, one of the writer producers from lower decks fantastic what w- uh, you know I-, I i don't really have much to offer on that because i haven't seen it i feel like shatner now yeah, right. i haven't seen it <laughs> I don't know. It could be great. It could be great. It could not be. I don't know. I haven't seen it. So we have other people to talk about those shows. Yeah. As simple as that. But you know this whole idea of like, don't take Shatner's side.
4: What though?
0: What the what? what?
2: Whoever side we there, want.
0: You know, <laughs> even if I didn't consider Bill a friend, even if I didn't make a movie with Bill, yeah, I he, I worship the ground that the man walks on. Or, or the sky that he spins around in. Yeah, yeah. I have so much respect for him. And, and and the fact that at 90 years old, he literally went into space. And then he comes back and he's clearly touched by um, the, what he just experienced. Um, and it, it is amazing. And then George Takei has the audacity to basically shit on all that. And he That's doesn't, and and, and and Shatner's response was frankly hysterical. Yeah. The, you know, the idea is, so, uh, you know, I stole a shot from him 50 years 50 ago. Years ago? And would
2: have given him an
0: <laughs> extra 30 seconds of network time? I mean, you know, look, nobody's saying that Shatner wasn't an egotistical narcissist on the original show. Of
2: course Usually he was, but he
0: admits it. it. He was a star of a television show. I was just going to say, number one on the call sheet almost always is. And, you know, sometimes (laughs) you can live with it and sometimes you can't. And, uh, you know, look, for for all the nice things people say about Leonard, you know, Leonard wasn't any better. He just dealt with people differently. So um, anyway, I I just want to point this out because I just, I look, I know we're going to continue to get this stuff. I just want to say, we are not the news. It is not our job to to, um, uh, to be impartial. You know, we're not an umpire.
2: And obviously, uh, we love having you listen to us. But if you don't like our podcast, there's plenty others that you might enjoy. So, for example, a, an entirely different podcast. free world. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: No, I, I look, and I don't want to belabor the point, but that, that's exactly the point. It's like, we love having you here. We love talking about Star Trek. And, um, and and if you enjoy it, then great. And if not, don't come. That's fine, don't come, too. Don't come around here no more. That's fine, too. Exactly. Like Darren says, plenty of other podcasts. Well, think of it this way. Do you think people would rather that we talk
3: passionately about the Star Trek that we love or just kind of fake sincerity about Star Trek that we don't? Right,
0: like, what's gonna be a better show? Like, why do people like, listen? Like some other people we know who face sincerity. Uh,
3: <laughs> well, once you learn to do that, the rest is easy. But you know- No, here's
1: the last. I just wanna say, I think you guys would actually, if you haven't seen Lower Decks, I, I think you would, uh, you, you might enjoy it. It's it's a lot like this show in, in many ways. A lot of deep cuts, a lot of deep cuts. <laughs> Often amusing, I'll make you smile, and uh, ultimately, it's a colossal waste of time. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> much like this show, exactly. Yeah. Uh, look, I'm not saying, look, I have, I have no opinion on
0: because I've watched it. Will I watch it one day? I may very well watch it one day when I have the time, if I have the time, if, if you have the courage, you right? know. Um, and I will say, I don't, look, I'll say this too. We talk about the things we love, you know. Um, if we were going to talk about Star Trek that we didn't love which we do on occasion because at the end of the day, we love star Trek three as much as we, 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 we criticize and, and, and yes. have a lot of fun at its expense because it's an immensely movie. We
2: love star Trek three, just like the way we love Fredo. But,
0: <laughs> but, but, if we were going to, to talk about some of the other shows or, or, or star Trek that maybe we aren't as big fans of that we have, that wouldn't be fun for any of us. It wouldn't be fun for you because if you love something, enjoy it. And if we if we don't love something, we really don't want to spend an hour talking about it. You know, um, we, we it doesn't give us any joy to start eviscerating uh, um, a TV show or a movie. Um, it might, you know, but we it depends won't. on how how drunk we are.
5: That's right,
1: but unless it's, it's Star Trek Three.
0: Right, but, you know. And again, it's like we said, with Star Trek Three. You know, Star Trek Three. Yeah, we we think is an immensely flawed movie. It's not a great Star Trek movie, but we love it. You know, and... And, uh, and it's but still if, Star Trek. But if it was something tr- like Nemesis that we truly hated, I don't know how interesting it would be to hear us talk about it. It wouldn't. You know, I mean, Star Trek Three is only because we know that backwards and forwards. And, uh, you know, and it's goofy. It's goofy. Let's face it. It's a goofy movie. Okay. So one anyway. Life,
2: one live, not, yet both in
3: pain. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good description of this podcast. <laughs>
0: Okay, so I don't know, Darren. <laughs> long, if <laughs> I'm going to start talking to you again. I'm going to forgive you for this uh, right, Star so Trek, so I'll talk Trek. back to you. This Star Trek six nonsense. Don't you dare talk back. It's
2: thing of ours. I
0: I, I I checked with Steve this week to make sure he was in training for the great debate. He said he's, 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 he's in training. You Steve Abso. Yep, uh, as well, and not we can, Steve, I could feel Steve, his no.
3: blood pressure rise like as uh,
0: Star Trek 3 came. He on. said, Unfortunately, he just found out Burgess Meredith is dead, so he's trying to get Carl Weathers to train him. But uh, nice. but, but, but you can do it, Steve. Could you imagine? It's like an arrested development. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, the head of 20th Century Fox or 20th Century Pictures calls up Carl. I think Carl Weathers, I need to talk to Carl. You got a movie role for him? No, I need him to train me for a debate about Star Trek 6 with Darren's <laughs> Octopus. <laughs> great <laughs> <laughs> that's why i need carl weathers i'm going into training and i'm not coming out until i'm ready i, I i'd like to see the movie montage maybe it could be like the disco theme for star trek three you know that could like, be
3: but in the sequel doesn't he get punched out by mr t and like or drake what, no, but Draco. no actually he it's by drago oh, I mean,
0: drago right? kills right? mr t i mean kills uh carl, kills, weathers. <laughs> kills carl yeah. weathers yeah kills right carl or weathers. just kills kills Steve. apollo pretty bad right I know. Well, we won't have him debate a Russian. He won't be yeah. able to debate Walter Koenig. Okay, so uh, thank <laughs> you. Mike's Mike's <laughs> here to talk about Enterprise. Oh, so I'm thank not- you, thank you for indulging us on the on the on on that. You know, and it's so interesting to me. And before we start talking about the Bible, uh, you know, you were coming off of Voyager, and you were starting to hear inklings that there was going to be a new Star Trek series that Rick and Brandon were doing. Tell us a little bit about what the tenor of the office was like and sort of what it was like for you hearing there was another Star Trek show in development and that you would be a part of it from its infancy.
4: For decades, we've dreamed of traveling beyond our solar system. This fall, we will. Today,
6: we are about to cross a new threshold. Witness the beginning of the Star Trek
4: saga. Starfleet seems to think that we're ready to begin our mission. Don't screw this up. The first captain. Request permission to get underway. Take her out, Mr. Mayweather. The first crew. They have two settings, stun and kill. It will be best not to confuse them. The first trek into the final frontier. Neptune and back in six minutes.
6: Just a little trouble with the bad guys.
5: You might think about
3: recommending seatbelts when I get home.
0: A new era of discovery is about to begin.
1: Let's go. Enterprise launches Wednesday, September 26th on UPN. Uh, well, it was, uh, you know, for the better part of a year, it was it was sort of an open secret that Brandon and Rick were, were working on you know, the next show. And really, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know if it was a prequel. We didn't know if it was going to be on an Enterprise. Um, and... Uh, you know, Phyllis Strong, my writing partner at the time, we you know, we wrote a couple of episodes, um, uh, for Voyager. We, we came aboard the show as uh, story editors that that final season, and we turned in with it ended up being our final script for the show. It was episode, I guess, 20, 20 24, 25, and 26 with the finale. And we got a call, Brandon wants to see you, and we got pulled into Brandon's office, and he said, we're working, you know, Rick and I have written this pilot, it's called Enterprise. Uh, we wanna hire you guys uh, to be on the show. Here's a copy of the pilot and the Bible. Um, you're on vacation starting right now. Don't tell anybody about this, even the other writers on the show. And uh, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks, go on vacation. And it, we were just stunned, we were stunned. Um, it's funny having just revisited the, the Bible, uh, that you guys, had, you know, were kind enough to email to me. I had zero recollection of, of of reading it. I'm sure I read it, um, and I think the version we're going to be talking about today is a little. Uh, it predates it predates, uh, I think, by a couple of months, uh, the final script and and even the final version of the Bible. But it's interesting to see, you know, the, the DNA for the show is really there. And I will, say, you know, I, I think it, it reads as a very solid. Uh, very, you know, solid premise for a Star Trek series. Uh, people may, you know, are going to have their own opinions about the show that ultimately uh, came to be, but um, I think it's a really good document.
0: Yeah, uh, upon rereading it, I kind of feel the same way, although I will say I feel the document, from a writing perspective, is a little sloppier than the other ones we've looked at. I, I, I feel, it's, you know, it feels a little rushed, and a lot of um, what it does like the the Deep Space Nine Bible we talked about, Voyager, it does a lot of sort of cliff noting the series till that point, you know, a lot of really generic explanation. Now, I think what's um, interesting in the wake of Enterprise is, you know, uh, Brandon talking about how him and Rick had really wanted to keep it set on Earth for the first year and how it was the network. Because, again, this was not done for first-run syndication. This was done for UPN really insisted that they get into space right away um, and that so that went away also the other big note that they got and we'll get to this in the Bible is the idea that they were very reluctant to do a prequel so they wanted some kind of sequel element which you know brought the temporal time war in the Suleban as uh, um, something that sort of ran and grabbed from another pilot of his. Um, and uh, introduced into this. So there would be a sequel element as well as a prequel element to the show, which I think was kind of a novel concept. You can argue about how it was um, executed, but that it's such an interesting premise, the idea that it's both a prequel and a sequel at the same time.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it was a great idea. We didn't always execute it, I I think, as well as it could have been, but that was was a dynamite uh, notion, I thought.
0: So Darren, if you would read to us, uh, let's get into the Bible and just sort of set the table with this by reading the beginning of, uh, of the Enterprise Bible and how it describes this world that is about to be created.
2: Enterprise follows the adventures of the first crew aboard the first high warp starship. It takes place during the early pioneering days of space exploration. The backstory. In first contact, the Enterprise E traveled back through time to help Zefram Cochrane become the first human to achieve warp speed. Cochrane was a survivor of the long war which had plagued Earth for much of the mid 21st century. Little is known about the two centuries which followed but humanity obviously made great strides to reach the 23rd century of Captain James T. Kirk. War, disease, greed, they were all eliminated and replaced with a global commitment to exploration, and improving the quality of life. Starfleet was eventually founded, allowing mankind to take its first steps into the galaxy. As contact was established with more and more warp-capable species, the United Federation of Planets was formed. All this in 200 years. Enterprise takes us to the year 2151, midway through this transitional period. Interstellar space travel is in its infancy, and the United Federation of Planets is still decades away. Headquartered in San Francisco's Presidio and at the Utopia Planitia. Well, I'm a Lucasfilm. And, well, Lucasfilm becomes the United Federation of Planets. So that right. isn't mentioned here. Um, Starfleet has been in existence for less than 20 years. Since our Vulcan, quote, advisors who have been methodically guiding us since first contact, have refused to share their warp technology. It's taken humanity nearly a century to achieve warp five. At warp two, only 18 inhabited planets were within a year's travel. At warp five, the number increases to 10,000 planets. How many at warp six? Yes. (laughs) As a result, Starfleet has begun to design interstellar vessels capable of long-range exploration. As well as technologies to develop prototypes for phasers, transporters, deflector shields, artificial gravity, lunch boxes, etc. <laughs> uh, you want me to continue?
0: Just this next paragraph.
2: All right. The Starship Enterprise is the first ship designed for these long-range missions, when the launch is moved up by three months due to the Broken bow incident pilot episode,
0: not to be confused with the
1: Oxbow incident.
2: Right. (laughs) Enterprise is forced to leave Earth with a number of systems untested. In fact, dilithium injectors and hand phasers are such recent innovations that they won't get their first trials until after the mission has begun.
0: Okay, so Michael, obviously you don't remember literally reading this, but in in retrospect, how challenging or or, um, how interesting was it to sort of uh, deal with Star Trek's technology in its infancy. The fact that the th- the very things that make Star Trek Star Trek transporters, um, you know, artificial gravity uh, uh, phasers, were something that you were really wrestling with. How much are they going to be a part of the show in the beginning? Of course, most of them ended up being incorporated fairly quickly. Um, but, you know, what were the challenges there?
1: Well, you know, I, I think we had, uh, I, I'm pretty sure Brandon made it clear early on that, you know, one piece of technology they didn't want to put on uh, this enterprise was the transporter, and I and they got pushed back from, uh, you know, the studio and/or the network. It's not Star Trek without the transporter, and so it ended up becoming, you know, initially it was just going to be a cargo transporter, and nobody really used it. Everyone's attitude toward it was a bit like Doctor McCoy in the in the original show, which was kind of fun. And but by the end of the pilot, the transporter ends up saving the day in a, in a very cool sequence, but. You know, we by that point we've already kind of given up on uh, on the I think the the more primitive aspects of uh, space exploration. Um, yeah, I, I think it, you know it, it, I, I think that would have been you know Rick and Brandon's uh, preference to 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 make the ship a little more a little more primitive. Um, you know, it would have been interesting I think to you know not have phasers. You know, we, maybe we've only got uh, you know weapons that shoot projectiles or or or. Or laser beams that are that are fatal, you know, make it a little more difficult for uh, for our crew. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of you know the the next paragraph that uh, you know Darren didn't read gets into how the you know the crew members of the Enterprise are far from the squeaky clean academy graduates uh, of the future, and you, you know I I think we could have pushed a little more in that direction as well. Um, they, they, were, they were in many ways just, you know, as, as sleek and, uh, and as knowledgeable as, as the crews that would, would man these ships hundreds of years later. I mean, one thing that I think was kind of interesting, I mean, there was, for instance, like no Starfleet Academy. There was a Starfleet, but no Starfleet Academy. I never quite understood that. But I liked how the ship was going, for, or how the show was going for that NASA aesthetic. And I thought, you know, what if this Enterprise had been a little more like the NASA of today, where you had a crew who were you know you'd have you'd have you know air force and navy veterans on the ship but you'd also have scientists and there'd be and space the- force and space force yes well yeah. and bill Shatner. um well, he was he's the chef he's he was the chef on the show I don't know right. like but um he but was jeff get-
0: bezos is guy
1: you get you get that conflict between. I, I years later I uh, was working on this uh, NASA project and the notion of the of the friction between the scientists and the military people on a on a spacecraft. That to me is very interesting and very rich area for drama. Right. I think if we had you know rewound it a little more, or, I you know again this is you know, I didn't create the show I, I was a writer on it. I think that would have been a very interesting. Uh, uh, a conflict to explore and much as voyager tried to do the whole you know maquis starfleet yeah. thing which worked and or didn't work depending um i thought this would be a way of doing a a, a similar uh, cultural split on on the ship well ashley wasn't that a staple of science fiction in the
0: 50s so the military versus the scientists i mean whether you look at something like the thing or war of the worlds or so many of these movies that was kind of a staple of the genre oh, i mean sure. in an interesting look- way Look, Jim Kirk was
3: a lot of things, but he was never a Boy Scout, right? I mean, it's it's kind of a thing that's like that's 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 even baked into Trek already in like some of the some of the best ways. And I mean, I, I agree with Michael. It's you know, when I read this this Bible, especially that section, which is what I keyed in on about the uh, the crew members of the Enterprise, you know, that I thought, okay, so what a great way of getting around the Roddenberry rules. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? What a great way of saying, well, we're not revolve, but not full. And we can still have like you know some of that that conflict. We can we can get around some of those those things that that make drama difficult at times. Um, and we could do it in a way that when you read the Bible feels completely sustainable. right? Like I read that and I go, yep that's a show right that's a premise for a star trek show i 100% get it and what michael's talking about where you like you reach into some of those cultural divides right, that we you know know and understand from our own experiences right that that that's something that 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 would have been cool that that i haven't seen before other than in real life you know working with like you know, the Navy who are working with, you know, actual engineers and scientists, like doing things with like the Naval Research Labs and doing, all that. and it's just, that's always an interesting, um, it's always an interesting collision um, between worldviews and approaches. And I think, God, if, if that had been in a Star Trek show, it would have been amazing. It would have been absolutely perfect. And it's just, it it just it kind of, I don't know, it's uh it 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 fills me with just a little like a twinge of regret, Michael, that like that that what you pitched out wasn't at the heart of what that show was. Well just um,
1: yes. if, if,
3: I, if I could, just an interesting
2: side note, because Roddenberry kind of addressed this slightly in the motion picture novel. Um not the not necessarily the scientist but the sort of squeaky clean uh, Starfleet kind of thing and uh, he talks about um, he talks about this sort of perfected human not being very good at dealing with other uh, uh, other aliens and races um, and that that these perfected humans were so good and so adaptable to their environment that a lot of them would just... Sort of turn native and join the uh, you know join the the first contact when they when they meet these uh, other uh, cultures, and that Kirk in fact was a was a a less desirable uh, 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 persona to have as a captain because he actually could think for
3: himself. You know that's brilliant, and it reminds me a little bit of the Team America World Police speech Right. about. <laughs> Dicks and assholes.
1: (laughs) The world needs dicks too. I had a a really interesting, uh, it was a little bit of a mini revelation working on another show. A couple of years ago, I worked on the final two seasons of a a TNT show called The Last Ship. And that was a show that was made with the cooperation of the U.S. Navy because every year we go down to San Diego and and shoot on a real destroyer for a couple of weeks. And uh, I, I discovered that in the U.S. Navy, they are far more onerous in their rules about how Navy people or fictional characters would behave than Gene Roddenberry ever was with his uh, so-called rule. Um, every script was, was, was read. We, we had you know, regular meetings with Navy officials. We had on the set a Navy captain, often you know, in uniform, just sitting there in a director's chair, um, who we would turn to for advice every now and then. And uh, it was just kind of, it made me, it always made me smile to see these guys, and so many of them are big Star Trek fans, which was kind of cool. But the notion of being able, you know, to to create a Star Trek series and having like, you know, uh, a Starfleet captain there telling you what you can and cannot do. I mean, for instance, on that show, we couldn't even show characters, uh, you know, having sex aboard the ship because that's uh, not something the Navy uh, permits. It's a no-no. It's a no-no. Um, But for all of the restrictions that the Navy placed on us, the the value we got out of, you know, their expertise and how things really were on the ship and how it functioned were like invaluable. And that was kind of the best part of the show was the naval element of it.
0: That's so interesting. And, you know, what you talk about, too, is this counterpoint. Not only was it primitive technology, but primitive human beings. And uh, it addresses that in this part of the Bible, where it says, with their star charts mostly empty, our crew will have to struggle to prove they're ready for life among the stars. They will prevail because what is best about our species? Intelligence, creativity, and a yearning to prove humanity's worth. Contact between races will be fraught with uncertainty and miscommunication in pre-Federation space. There are no neutral zones, no diplomats or emissaries, leaving our explorers to solve their own problems. By setting the series in Star Trek's past, quote unquote, the core audience will be able to witness the birth and growing pains of a future they've come to know so well. From photon torpedoes to subspace communications, from the Prime Directive to the Romulan Star Empire, the fans will see the introduction of ideas, species, and technologies that have become part of the American mythos. By setting the series in Star Trek's past, we are also setting it closer to our present. This will allow us to create more contemporary characters, a pioneering cast, which can embody the positive uplifting elements of the original series and the next generation. I want to see that. I really want to see (laughs) see that show, right?
5: It's like,
3: it sounds amazing. And I can absolutely see them sitting around together and like talking all the stuff through deciding that all of this was true and that this is how it was going to be and being on some level completely right about it. Although there's there's something about you know when I just that first part of that paragraph about seeing all these things for the first time. The reality is that those things are just, they're big ideas that are difficult to dramatize. They're tools, they're toys that you use in the storytelling, and they they're not inherently exciting. The right. Problem like the problem with me is that the audience is way ahead of you, one hundred percent. That's right. Where's my quantum torpedoes and my ablative armor? Yeah, <laughs> you know, screw it, man. Like like if just Tell a great story about meeting him, wrongly. But like, but like the, the character shit that they're talking about there is to me, like that's the stuff that's potentially interesting. Like you go like, okay, I get it. You guys have crapped the code.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. I was thinking when we were doing our, look, looking back at our Deep Space Nine, when we did the Deep Space Nine Bible, how audacious it was to basically introduce this character of Cisco, whose first big scene is getting in a fight and being addicted Picard. Because like? you know Picard is this beloved character that, that everyone yeah. loves, right? And now you're going to introduce this character who is an asshole to him. He's like, that is not the way to get somebody to like, you know, your character. But it was really ballsy, and I, you know, I feel like, wow, you know, Star Trek, it's that whole uh, Deep Space Nine response. Like we have to, you know, avoid doing anything, you know, too, too, you know, too ballsy because you know deep space nine quote-unquote didn't work but um we tried balls on deep space but, but, nine and, and the people didn't like it and i gotta ask you Michael. i'm gonna have you read this this is captain jackson archer uh of course that became jonathan
1: archer and it should because have been
0: two last names captain robert april <laughs> but
1: um we have to kind you said that in an earlier episode we we have to have a conversation about that um so are you pitching that this show should have been that Archer simply should have had April's name or that this should have been a show about... No, he should have had Enterprise. April's
2: name. He should have had April's name.
0: Yeah, he should have had... A, he, the first captain of the Enterprise was Captain Robert April. and 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 The first captain of
1: a different Enterprise.
0: Of the Starship Enterprise.
1: Yeah, the NCC-1701, so, not 100 years before.
0: He, so, wait. So, wait a second. This is interesting now. So, you're saying Captain Robert April was the first captain of the Enterprise, which was not... This enterprise. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I feel, I'm not making this up. I mean, isn't that fairly established? Uh, I mean, I, depending what you know, whatever one thinks of the animated series, I, I feel like they're haven't there been like name drops because of the because show?
0: you know, basically they've said since it's Archer to Pike to Kirk. That's true. you, you know. So although I, I think
3: look, here's this is what I find fascinating. God, and I really hope that mommy and daddy don't fight again. But, um, I. I think it, I think, I think room. Mike, yeah, right. Michael's argument, I think, is actually pretty fantastic. And I kind of love it because that made me think, well, shit, because by that logic, and it's compelling, right? Like, yeah. whoever the hell the he captain of like the, the enterprise number. was at Midway was like, well, really the first captain of the enterprise. Well, actually, you go back further than that, right? Like, he was the captain of the enterprise. Awesome. I totally buy that logic. Although, Mark is right. Essentially, they've, they've, you know, the, the, the Star Trek has attempted to make the argument that it did in fact go Archer. to <laughs> we're it going
0: to. down the rabbit hole. James Bond is a code name and every right. James Bond <laughs> is James Bond. And they just get the name when they become 007. But then that was blown up by Lashana Lynch, right? Oh, Lynch. So, <laughs> so weirdly, wouldn't it be great though, if she said her name was James Bond, if <laughs> you're like, so it's, it's the same thing with this. It's kind of like, well, what Michael says is really interesting. It's a different number. So it's a different Enterprise, you know, and that would also explain what Star Trek The Motion Picture when he says all these ships were named Enterprise. But subsequent to that, they've always treated it as like, this was the original Enterprise and then there was Pike's Enterprise after that. So then that sort of blows that up. But I think that you could save this by saying Robert April was the first captain, you know, of of the Enterprise 1701 and that this other Enterprise was like, it was just, you know, it was a different series of enterprises. And when I when was, they...
1: Yeah, when I was given the script, I, and Brandon was explaining the premise of the show for about ten seconds, I thought this was this was the launch of the of the seventeen oh one, and right. it be about that ship, you know, twenty years before Kirk commanded it. And then, you know, <laughs> he finished the sentence, and, and I realized that was not the premise of the show. Um, I would love to see that show, but I do think that what. What was so promising about Enterprise is because you have a whole century there that is really unexplored, that that's a much more fertile, and you have the, you know, the founding of the Federation, um, the Romulan Wars coming up, then that's a much more fertile storytelling area than setting something really close to the original series, I thought.
0: As, as we'll see by Strange New Worlds, won't we?
1: So, well, yeah, I mean, I wish them the best of luck. I can't wait to see it. But uh, it's, you know, it, I guess Discovery, you know, ran into some issues there as well and changed the, you know, the setting of their show. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, there, there certainly wasn't a, you know, a shortage of, uh, you know, uh, you know, there was a big universe still to play in. I think without um, going down
0: the rabbit hole, that's Discovery. I, w- I would agree. I think the smartest decision they made on that show was to 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 throw the ship into the future and cut ties with the past where it was this, you know, you know, where they were just retconning cannon left and right and, you know, some would argue shitting on it. Um, so I, I think that, you know, going into the future and sort of clearing the board and being able to do whatever they
1: want was really smart decision. Do you want me to read some of this uh, I do. Gillespie? That would okay. be great. Sure. Uh, just a side note, I, Jack Archer, I think was Brandon's preferred name for the character, but we, we just couldn't clear it with legal. Right. So that's because I there mean. already
0: was a starship captain named Jackson Archer in the Yellow Pages. And they yeah, haven't.
1: exactly. Yeah.
4: Fellow delegates, this last week, we've seen what humans can be at their worst, but we cannot, we must not use that as an excuse to end the dream that began here. Then, the demons of our past will have won. Instead, I want to look to the future and begin by honoring the people responsible for our being here tonight. They represent all of us at our best. Up until about a hundred years ago, there was one question that burned in every human that made us study the stars and dream of traveling to them. Are we alone? Our generation is privileged to know the answer to that question. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. Yet, The more I've experienced, the more I've learned that no matter how far we travel or how fast we get there, the most profound discoveries are not necessarily beyond that next star. They're within us woven into the threads that bind us, all of us, to each other. The final frontier begins in this hole. Let's explore it together.
6: step, the captain says it's going to take years to work out the details.
1: Captain Jackson Archer, uh, early 40s, physical, intensely curious, born and raised an explorer by his father, an engineer who worked on the Warp 5 project. Unlike the captains in centuries to come, Archer exhibits a sense of wonder and excitement, as well as a little trepidation about the strange things he will encounter. He holds a grudge against the Vulcans, who he blames for impeding humanity's progress but his science officer is Vulcan and he's struggling to reconsider these preconceptions. Although he has a strong sense of duty, he's a bit of a renegade, he's not afraid to question orders or even disobey them if he feels in his gut that he's right. Archer, that was the
0: original title of the show, Star Trek Renegade.
1: There you go. Uh, Archer was, was there. What the about
3: Lorenzo Lamas going
1: across? Hey. Archer was there when the first Gertruss and the Enterprise were put into place and when the Vulcans tried to suspend the Maiden launch after the Broken Bow incident, Claiming humans weren't ready for interstellar travel, Archer helped persuade Starfleet to press on. He has mixed feelings about Topow. Now let's stop for a mm-hmm. second. Okay, so well, he loves and, that band. And, and but at uh, the
0: same time, okay, we're gonna stop. We're gonna, we're gonna stop for a second to explain why it's significant. Okay, so the original plan had been to call T'Pau, T'Pau, which was going to be Celia Lovsky as, uh, as a young hot woman in a uh, uh, suit, and when and it got out Powell. to the fans uh fans kind of freaked out and they changed it but then <laughs> denied that it ever was to pow right. um which is really interesting because of course in this bible it's very clearly to pow
2: it sort of uh, uh, makes the statement all of vulcan in one package a little more meaningful
1: <laughs> okay. So Michael, uh, sorry to interrupt. Continue, please. No, no, it's okay. I mean, honestly, I honestly, I remember it differently. Uh, I, I think it was just a rights issue. They just didn't want to pay, you know, the original, I guess it was, was it Sturgeon who wrote a mock time? that they it was, uh, Yeah. Theodore, the Theodore
0: yeah, Sturgeon. Yeah, that
3: feels on brand. Like uh, to, somewhere to pal was hanging
0: out with Nick Lacarno yeah. going like we could have been contenders. Okay. Now remember yeah. uh, since the last strike, <laughs> what are character payments now up to on, uh, on, on what are they? $60, $75 an episode, like, I think. I'm... And it's at the discretion of the producer. You know, it's like... Producer's discretion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I I find that whole thing, like, really weird. I mean, of course, it could also be Paramount Legal saying this could potentially help us up, and they say, well, not really, but uh, we, we're still going to be conservative, but... um
1: My impression was they got a memo from somebody. I don't know if it was Paramount Legal or somebody... They don't
0: call her this. to pal
1: yeah so they say, it would well, have been cool
0: well look we could, i'm just criticizing we the we way find anybody
1: was... with like a hungarian cool. accent you know right and also play the character
0: you know i, I think jolene
3: not- outworlders
0: was terrific you know but Absolutely. this was the era of the 90s where you know they put her in you know maxim tv guide look that's a whole nother episode because you know uh, obviously you know jerry ryan has had a lot to say on that subject and i'm sure jolene if she still talked about star trek would do the same thing um but um you know it was the 90s and and that's what you did and uh on a a show and um you know but to her credit she was a big fan of the original series and um she only got better as time went on
1: terrific in the show i I loved her i thought she did it yeah i did too um am i reading any more here please do Okay, Uh, Archer has mixed feelings about T'Pau. She embodies the arrogance and high-mindedness of the Vulcans, who kept his father from realizing his dream of space exploration. But he also realizes that Tapau is a more seasoned uh, space traveler, and he often relies on her wisdom and experience, at times he even enjoys her dry sense of humor. Archer and T'Pau will continue to butt heads regarding humanity's new role in the intergalactic neighborhood, but they will also develop a long-lasting friendship that is re- rather unique for its day, the bond between human and alien.
0: Which is one Seasoned of the most- as a hell of a thing to say to a man. Which is one of the most interesting things uh, that this introduced to mythology, which was the idea, you know, the beloved Vulcans were not our friends, that they were standing in the way of humanity's uh, moving forward into galaxy. Michael, do you remember what your impression was when you learned that, you know, the Vulcans weren't gonna be like, uh, you know, our buddies?
1: Look, okay, I, I think introducing that that conflict was a great idea. I mean, I think it would have been a very dull, um, you know, way to, to, to proceed with the series if they were, uh, you know, if they were all as friendly as, as Spock was in, in the future. And let's not forget in the original series, you know, with the exception of, of Spock and then his father later, Vulcans were kind of jerks. Uh, well, and
0: also Sarek did not want his son to go to the, Vol- uh, to, uh, the Starfleet Academy. Starfleet, yeah. He was very disapproving. You know, that he was dropping out of the Vulcan Science Academy to go
1: to Starfleet. So, um, it, you know, it tracks. No, it, it, it totally tracks. And also the idea that, you know, that Vulcans are, uh, you know, we're pacifists, they're vegetarians. They, they they just would not be on board with Starfleet's mission. I mean, I, I think Spock's mother explains that, you know, pretty, you know, uh, eloquently in, in in the original. Um, it something it, it, that said, I didn't, I never quite understood the whole, how the Vulcans held us back. I mean, unless they were sort of like actively sabotaging the, you know, the- Sabotage. The, the sabot, sabotage, so- It sickens me. Um, it, it almost came off as like entitlement right? sometimes, like, you know, the Archer's belief was that, you know, the Vulcans should have just given us, you know, all of their fancy technology right. <laughs> and, and let us fly around the galaxy. And why didn't they? It just sounded a little whiny. So I never, I never quite understood what that. We never really, do, you know, dove into it in any detail. I thought it would have been fun to find out that the Balkans actually were sabotaging sabotage, uh, you know the uh, you, you know Starfleet's uh, warp uh, tests. And I think that would have been really interesting. They were doing it for our good, but that would that would be a real, uh, you know, well, bone of contention between them.
3: I think on on paper, I actually think it's a the notion of what's here is a really good idea. I think yeah. where it missed in the show was it's like you said, right? It it did come off as entitled because the argument was simply asserted rather than telling the story of an adolescent trying very hard to be an adult. Right. And how, you know, we the 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 episodes, the stories of those episodes teach us the ways in which we're not adults yet, but also teach the Vulcans the ways in which we are, right? And the and the and the directions that will grow, so that the argument is on its feet rather than simply being cranky, uh, you know, and and that sort of becoming the the substitute but the funny for thing the is drama.
2: All of this is dealt with in the first scene of Where No Man Has Gone Before. The, the dialogue between Kirk and Spock
3: when they're playing when they're playing they're chess. Playing
2: chess. Spock yeah. is Spock is an asshole. And he's, you know, ah oh, yes, one of your earth emotions, you silly little fool. And then Kirk beat them in, in chess. Yeah. It's it's that whole dynamic.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, That's a right. good point. And now, you know, they, they talk next about Archer is something of a mentor to Spike. Now, this is not Spike from Spuffy. Spike from the
3: Transformers series. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking of
0: Buffy. It's not Jeff Spartan. Oh, okay. It's uh, 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 James Marsters. It's um, actually the original name for Tucker. So we'll, okay. we'll, we'll, get to that. But it's interesting that it, it sort of wraps up by saying the Kirk's and Picard's and Janeway's will one day have the benefit of the captains who preceded them. But Jackson Archer is the prototype. He's making history with every light year because he knows his captain's logs will be studied for years to come. He keeps especially detailed reports. The logs themselves will be both personal and humorous. It's like, what could be less interesting than we're going to have really detailed, long, expositional captain's logs in the show? Now, if you wrote poetry and recorded that, it might be kind yeah, if of Amanda fantastic. Gorman was captain, it'd be interesting. Right. But I
3: love that he, you know, he records his, uh, uh, you know, he measures his life like one light year at a time, right? Like Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious. I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. But it's, you know, I,
2: I, I really like the description of Archer in this. My only problem is, it's not Scott Bakula. It's not,
3: it's like, it. look. It's Count We We all love Scott Bakula, like as like the idea of a Scott Bakula, yeah. but it's a little bit like, you know, mayonnaise kicking White Bread's ass. I mean, it's like, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know,
5: oh, it's like, okay.
3: okay. It's it just, it was just, it was not, he's too nice.
0: He's, he's too nice. nice you needed somebody with a little more danger and a little more, um, a little more Shatner esque. Yeah. You know, um, a little swagger or a little more Brooks esque, you know, um, where, you know, it could be like polite at at one second. And then the next second, you know, completely dangerous. And, um, uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, Scott's a wonderful actor and super talented and I understand why they wanted him because he was a name, but uh, you know, um, you're right. It needed somebody who had a little more levels to them, a little more dimensions to them, you know, um, that, that was it wasn't as nice. A little bit of danger. Right. Because then you
3: also, when you have him, you also wonder what the hell is wrong with the Vulcans. It's like, what's he going to do? He's the good kid. He gets right. straight A's. Yeah. He comes home when he says he's going to come home. Right. It's like, you know, he tells the truth. It's like he eats his peas.
5: He Leave built, him alone. He built,
3: model Let him kits. Fly. he built model kits for the
0: love of God. He's a
5: <laughs> nerd. See,
0: what was so like, Jim Kirk is the one you keep on a leash. And it's not easy to get lock. Like, uh, it's not easy, obviously. Shatner's don't grow on trees, but no, the, but the thing about Shatner was that he could elevate an even mediocre episode because what he was doing in it was so interesting. And I think the problem with Scott is, you know, in the better episodes, he's good, you know. But on the mediocre episodes the bad episodes, you know, he just disappears into the scenery. OK, so we talked
1: about. <laughs> uh, so, so, just to say, it, I mean, Scott, I mean, you know, great guy. He, he's one of the, you know, the first, you know, people on the on the, you know, the number ones on a call sheet who I ever worked with who would like see me on a set and walk over and knew my name and would say hello. I mean, to me, that was like kind of extraordinary being a low-level writer. Such a great guy. Um, and, you know, the reason the studio, the studio really didn't have anybody else in mind. I mean, they wanted him. I think the prevailing opinion, whether it was, I don't I don't think it was really correct, but, well, I mean, we could, we could talk about it. They, they felt that these shows really do live and die on the basis of the character, of the captain, and the actor who was cast. And the prevailing... Mm-hmm. The prevailing feeling was that here's the part I think you might push back against is that DS9 and Voyager were not the smash hits that TNG was was right. because of the of the leads and so they were gonna they were gonna get and pay for a star for this show and Scott was really the only uh, person I, as I understand it who was ever seriously entertained right. right like Patrick Stewart was in 1987
3: but no no I, Which, I totally get what you're saying right the, but, and you know there's, a, there's was a, against that's right. There's a, there's a, there's well, a, they're not saying
0: when they cast him, he was a star, it. but they're saying, right. you know, he became a star through sheer force right. of right. talent. And um, then you sort
3: of need it. But I think if this is a, a, a DS9 aside, which is kind of supporting Michael's point, which is, I think, look, I love Cisco from from Go because he was pranky, but I didn't like worship Cisco until he shaved his head and he grew the Goatee, right? When they let Avery be Avery. Like it was a different show. And if they let Avery be Avery from the top of that show, it would have been a different deal. Yeah. Um, so there is there is some truth to what UPN and what the studio is after.
0: And also remember, the ratings have been progressively declining. So and, and they're on a network now. And so what they want is they want to this thing we hear about every Star Trek movie and every new Star Trek TV series. We want to go beyond the cult. We want to bring in new viewers, right? They say it every time. It never happens. So it was the same thing with the show. Like they wanted to call it Enterprise. We want to go beyond the cult. We want people who, who, who've who never watched Star Trek to come and watch. How do you do that? You put an actor they love in, in the show. Oh, you love Quantum Leap, but you've never seen Star Trek. But come because you love Scott Bakula. You're going to love this show. And um, But again, so much Star Trek mythology that you need to come to the table with that it's really hard for a new viewer to just jump in and, and get excited about the show.
2: And if they do, then it's probably because the show isn't appealing to that core audience.
0: There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who would never watch a space show, no matter what, they just will not watch a show in the future in space. It's it's just not their cup of tea, you know? And I think, I mean, it'll be interesting. I mean, this, you know, I guess, uh, Paramount Plus is premiering in the next few weeks uh, A Star Trek Prodigy Which is an animated series for kids You know, for kids yeah. And um, the idea is to to sort of Mint new Star Trek fans um, The way the Clone Wars brought a lot of kids Into Star Wars, right? Um, it'll be interesting to see if that works Yeah I don't know, you know I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd be, be very interested, I hope so I don't want to see Star Trek die I want to see it flourish I want, to, it, I want to
1: see it survive. The risk in doing what Enterprise tried to do and, you know, bringing... New, you, you take the risk that not only don't you get the new fans, but you alienate the ones that you have. And I think there was a certain, uh, you know, an aspect of that uh, you know, going on, certainly with, you know, the, the, the premiere of Enterprise. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, Ashley, let's find out about Subcommander to Pau, who became su- Subcommander to Um, if you will read to us uh, this description.
4: Grand Canyon? No. Big Sur Aquarium.
5: Sightseeing was not one of my assignments.
4: Mm. All work and no play. Everybody should get out for a little fun now and then.
6: All our recreational needs are provided at the compound. Come in. Should have started without me. Sit down. Paul tells me she's been. Living at the Vulcan compound in Sausalito. No kidding. I live a few blocks from there when I first joined Starfleet. Great parties at the Vulcan compound.
4: <laughs> it might be a little easier using your fingers.
6: Vulcans don't touch food with their hands. Can't wait to see you tackle the spare ribs. Don't worry, we know you're a vegetarian. Looks delicious. Tell Chef I said thanks. Of course, sir. You humans claim to be enlightened, yet you still consume the flesh of animals. Grandma taught me never to judge
4: a species by their eating habits. Enlightened might be too strong a word, but if you had been on Earth 50 years ago, I think you'd be impressed by what we've gotten done.
6: You have yet to embrace either patience or logic. You remain impulsive carnivores. Yeah. How about war, disease, hunger? Pretty much wiped them out in less than two generations. I wouldn't call that small potatoes. It remains to be seen whether humanity will revert to its baser instincts. Well, we used to have cannibals on Earth. Who knows how far we'll revert? Lucky this isn't a long mission. Human instinct
4: is pretty strong. You can't expect this to change overnight.
6: With proper discipline. Anything's possible.
3: Vulcan female, austere but sensual. She is the science officer assigned to oversee our progress. In exchange for star charts and tactical information, the Vulcans insisted we include one of their officers on the Enterprise. Starfleet Command reluctantly agreed. Not everyone is happy with this addition to the crew. Why do we need a Vulcan watching over us like we're children, even if she is austere but sensual? (laughs) DePauw isn't thrilled with this assignment either. She was hoping for a Vulcan commission. The last thing she expected was to be living among a primitive, irrational species who eat meat. But she's resigned to this hardship post because she had no choice. She's not comfortable around the crew or the emotions they display. Secretly, however, she will begin to envy humans. Now that she lives among them, she can't help but develop a fascination with their cultures. In private, she likes to sample their food and catalog their behavior. She even studies their mating customs. Of course she does. What? Of DePau, course. This is the next sentence. This is my favorite. She studies her mating customs. Depauw has a grudging respect for Captain Archer, who has proven to her that humanity has the potential to exceed its limitations. She simply doesn't understand Spike, however. she she finds that he embodies all the baser instincts humanity has to offer oh my to gravitates toward dr flox oh yeah as a fellow outsider he's the only one she can confide in about her experiences among humans the two of them will often debate humanity and its foibles at one point (laughs) he'll give her a nasal numbing agent You have to pay extra. She can't stand the smell of humans when they're anxious or after they've eaten meat. She's older than everyone on board, but she won't reveal how old. Hoshi is always asking about her age to pal in human years or Vulcan years. A special note to fans of the original Star Trek series. In the episode Amok Time, a powerful ancient Vulcan woman named to will share a great adventure with James T. Kirk. Could this be the same Vulcan? Perhaps or if legal weighs in, probably not. <laughs> End parenthetical. Yeah, okay. Uh, how old is she?
0: Again, so what do we, what are we they're, think? They're I describing think an of, older of character. Uh, Hello? Michael, how is it to write this? <laughs> I heard you. <laughs> oh, he
3: didn't <laughs> hear you because he a piece up. Yeah, I can hear you.
5: Okay.
0: Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Jim?
3: Jim? Jim, why are they taking Genesis? Who's taking Genesis? <laughs> i was just gonna
2: say that again like uh uh like we heard before in voyager they're going they're trying for an older wiser vulcan to mm-hmm. be a uh, to be a guidance that's not what we got
1: no well i think that was always doing you know to cast someone you know between 20 and 30 years old so uh you know and i think ultimately she was in her 60s i guess which uh-huh. you know okay um T'Pol was a lot of fun to to write for. I I loved writing for Tuvok. I I love writing for uh, T'Pol. You know, I had some nutty ideas that, uh, you know, places we might go with her. Her character really put, was put through the ringer, uh, you know, in season three became addicted to a strange alien substance. We, you know, ended up putting her in a a relationship with uh, Trip Tucker, which was something that, in, you know, our, our actress, our lead actress here, uh, you know, wasn't particularly on board with, and I think that bled into her performance in unfortunate ways. Um, but, you know, by and large, uh, I, I thought she was a terrific character. I, I had some ideas where, where she could go. I, I really wanted to, uh, I wanted, I wanted to reveal a future season, a future episode that her father was perhaps Romulan which might explain why unlike the other Vulcans who couldn't even really tolerate being around humans that she could and what you know what was so different about her yeah. and I thought that could that could go a long way to to explain that and find a way to introduce the Rhinelands to the show in a very furtive right. sort of way. Um, I think she was a great character and and I thought Jolene uh, was really very good in, in the role. And then you had the interesting
0: storyline later of course with her being married and Uh, Joanna Cassidy is her mother, and there was some interesting stuff with that. A lot of opportunities uh, uh, with with DePaul and also, uh, you know, a a model turned actress. So it was the same arc that Terry Farrell went through. They didn't know exactly how to write her at first, but but then, you know, she got more comfortable and the writers got more comfortable. You really see, you you know, it start to sing.
1: For sure, and and it, I think we may have pointed out in a previous episode. She, you know, the the producers at first really wanted to downplay the Vulcan look. They would not give her the the, the arched eyebrows, uh, but she wanted those eyebrows, and and yeah. inspired with her makeup artists over the next couple seasons to raise them. So by season four, she's got like raised
0: them. <laughs>
5: <laughs>
1: we think much alike. The override. Alike, Kat. The override. override. <laughs>
0: Okay. <laughs> oh, this show is so geeky. Okay. Um, that, yeah. That's, I mean, that's really interesting. Because again, she was a fan. Yeah. You know, Star Trek is very unique. You know, it's like they're always... I mean, that's something, as you know, Mike, uh, uh, Rick and Brandon, uh, that first season, were really looking for a bunch of writers who'd never worked on Star Trek before because they felt they wanted people, you know, who thought differently. But, you know, the, the people who really succeeded on that show were the fans. You, um, obviously, later on, Manny Coto um uh, you know look at you know on the other shows you know, ron uh, um and uh renee i mean it's all the ira people who are fans of star trek seem to really uh they get it it's it's you know it's it's hard to to it, star trek as an acquired taste is not a recipe for success generally i'm not saying that you know it's impossible but
1: yeah. You, it's hard to, it's hard to reinvent the wheel when it comes to Star Trek. I, you know, part of the problem was, uh, you know, the the conception was that enterprise was going to be much more of a character focused show than the other series. I don't know that that necessarily, you know, that was really true. So, you know, let's look for writers who are just really good, uh, uh, good with character and we'll teach them the Star Trek of it. And I guess, you know, Jerry Taylor, I think that probably describes her to a certain extent. I don't know that she was a huge, no, not freaky, at all. Uh, when she joined, um, but there was also this massive weight of, uh, you know, of stories that had happened, uh, you know, granted that we're going to happen in the future of, of the show, but, you know, we then, we, you can't, we can't, we got to go out of our way to not try and repeat stories that were done before. So if you're hiring a bunch of writers who haven't seen those shows and, and aren't familiar with what's done before, it's, it's, it's hard to write a prequel to it or not just simply repeat it because, you know, you're, 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 you're unaware of, of the stories that have been told. Uh, in the past. So yeah, it was, it was a real, uh, it was a real balancing act.
6: Yeah,
3: yeah. I think there's some wisdom to that.
1: I mean, one of the things that, uh, that Robert Wolf would say,
3: um, came out of DS9 with Ira and all that was that he, he felt, and I'm beginning to suspect that this was a thing that kind of came down from the Trek culture, that it's easier to teach a writer who really understands character and story, how to write science fiction, than it is to teach a science fiction writer how to write about people. Um, and, you know, it's, that's not always the case. There, there are certainly like, you know, being, a, we're all fans here and three out of four of us are writers. And, you know, it's, it's not like anybody had to, had to teach us how to write characters. We just kind of did. But the the truth is that if you had to pick between somebody who could nail the, you know, the, the world and somebody who could nail the people. If you understand the, the world as the head writer, you take the
1: character person every single time, every single time, at least in my opinion. Yeah. And we did have new writers come in. So, you know, Chris Black came in as a, a you know, uh, upper level producer. And I think, you know, was with the show for three seasons uh, and it is a, a co-EP. He was, a, he was a huge, you know, TOS fan. Uh, had never written for you know Rick and Brandon before, but but got the show and 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 could write it to everybody's satisfaction.
0: But that counts as a Star Trek fan being a TOS fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, let's talk about Lieutenant Charlie Spike Tucker. Michael, you want to you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Spike? About Spike. I, I just like saying Spike.
4: Are you all right? A little shaky. Trust me. You don't wanna pass through the warp barrier in one of those. She'd make a nice addition to the Starfleet Museum. What went wrong? I'm not sure, sir. The closer I got to 2.2, the more trouble I had keeping the field stable. You were ordered to abort. The abort call was premature. We had some instability on the previous tests, but it always settled down. Your engine design is obviously
6: unsound. There's nothing wrong with that engine. You have something to add, Lieutenant? Tucker, sir. I'm on Captain Jeffrey's engineering team. We've never pumped this much antimatter through the injectors before. It's going to take us a little time to get the intermix right. That's precisely the point. Your program is moving too quickly. Just because it took you 100 years to crack Warp 2 doesn't mean it'll take us that long. Lieutenant! Sorry, sir.
4: He's right. This is a new engine. It's bound to have a few bugs to work out. Those bugs just scattered your ship across 5,000 kilometers of space and nearly killed your pilot. We're not going to get anywhere without taking some risks. I know where you stand on this, Commander. We've got a lot of data to analyze before we know what happened. We should be grateful we only lost the ship.
1: Chief Engineer, early 30s, a southerner who enjoys using his country persona to disarm people. He has an offbeat, often sarcastic sense of humor, Although Spike is a brilliant engineer and an outstanding officer, he has very little firsthand experience with alien cultures, and he's often a fish out of water when dealing with new civilizations. As a young man, he spent time deep sea diving in the Florida Keys, working on an ocean reclamation project. Bold and fearless, this thrill seeker didn't stop there. His skills at working in a hostile environment with no gravity dependent on artificial life support would eventually lead to a career in orbital engineering, building starships at Utopia Planitia where he earned a reputation as a troubleshooter who would take on challenges that most engineers think impossible. Uh, Spike's closest friend is Mayweather, the helmsman. Really? Uh, Similar in age (laughs) and spirit, these two men will spend their off-duty hours uh, finding new ways to enjoy life in space, whether they're test flying a new shuttle or exploring the possibilities of interspecies dating. Wink, wink. Uh, They're always looking for the next adventure. Spike is part of our Troika Archer, T'Pol, and Spike will often be the center of decision-making on the ship. Where have we heard that before? And they'll form a familiar sparring dynamic, a la Kirk, Spock, and McCoy.
0: Well, it literally is Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Literally. You have Archer, who's Kirk. Yeah. You have T'Pol, who's the Vulcan. It's like Sp- the Spike character, who's the good old Southern charmer. Right. They should have mixed it up a little bit and given T'Pol the good old Southern charm. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Wouldn't
3: that have been awesome? <laughs> country Vulcan. Vulcan. Vulcan.
0: But, you know, I, th- right. I, I think that was a case where, you know, Connor brought more to that role than maybe was on the page initially. You know, he, he, you know, he, he, I mean, he had a little bit of charisma, he's likable. The fans liked him, you know, he's a good enough actor.
1: And um, he, he's like the spitting image of George Bush who had just been elected, which was like strangely prescient and and fitting, whatever one may think of the politics of the, of the era. He was, he was, I loved writing for Trip. I mean, he was by no means my favorite character, but whenever I had a scene with him in it, I knew I could just kind of channel you know, that that early 21st century sarcasm into him and it and it and it and it rolled off the tongue and it and it fit wonderfully.
0: My problem is he reminded me of W, so I didn't like him. <laughs> I just had to say that just to piss people off. <laughs> um by the way, Colin Powell passed away today when we're recording this, which is really sad. And the reason I bring it up, of course, he, he was a big Star Trek fan. And I remember, you know, he visited the set. I think a couple of people put up pictures of him on the set of Next Gen. And uh, it's really sad because he, he was a good guy. And, uh, um, you know, for, for, for a man who, who lived his life in public service, you know, to, to sort of, you know, get cancer and, and all these all these things. And then ultimately, you know, sort of die the way he did. It's, it's really sad. Indeed. And that's the nicest thing I'll ever say about a Republican on the show, although he wasn't when he died. Okay, so Dr. Flox. Um, Darren, if you'll ta- tell us a little bit about Dr. Flox.
2: Well, I'll tell you, his full name is Flox Tan It is not, but he goes by Flox for our benefit.
6: Anyone sitting here? No, please. They're down. They're down. Sluggo any better? I'm afraid not. Try the potatoes; they're delicious. re sequins protein. Yes, the flavors are remarkable. <laughs> On my home world, people would never think of speaking during a meal; considered a waste of time. <laughs> it's taken me a while, but I've grown quite attached to it. Wasting time seems to be all we've been doing. Starting to get a little antsy, antsy, restless. We've been on the move for two weeks and haven't seen a damn thing. (laughs) Every moment's been an adventure for me. (laughs) Humans are so unpredictable.
4: Have you seen the quantities of food Crewman Neymar consumes?
6: Not really. Have you smelled Ensign Socorro after she exercises? Ah, she gives off a fragrance not unlike the adrenal gland of a Nausicaan. (laughs) And uh, Crewman Bennett and Tainum over there, do you see them? If I'm not mistaken,
4: they are preparing to mate.
6: Do you think they might let me watch? It's good to see you're enjoying yourself. Uh. Mm.
0: It's too complicated to
2: pronounce. Our most exotic character. The Doctor is an eccentric alien with an oblique sense of humor that no one quite understands. Because he speaks with an accent and isn't familiar with Earth cultures, there are many humorous misunderstandings. <laughs> Fox thinks that humanity is fascinating. A complex sexual moraine? Always, always the first thing. His species reproduces asexually. Social Humans customs. Humans boinking. Oh my, what a wonderful creature's. To say the doctor has made himself at home on the Enterprise is putting it mildly. He's filled sickbay with all sorts of bizarre medical instruments, alien plants and spores. And stasis chambers from Omicron 73. And stasis chambers filled
3: with small living creatures. Also for the sexual mores. He
2: practices a brand of intergalactic medicine, the likes of which we've never seen. This makes the most routine visit to sick bay an unexpected
5: adventure.
0: Look, you know what? It's not easy to write these Bibles, right guys? It's not. It's not. I mean, we're sitting here, we're, we're having a, you know, a laugh at their expense, but That's these things are hard.
2: You, you They're know, very hard, especially oh, when you're trying very to hard,
3: very hard. It, well, I, personally, And I've been meditating on this a lot since we've started this whole deep dive into the various Bibles that I I think there's this thing after the original series where there was this emphasis on let's create an ensemble that I think was based on a false premise. Yeah. Yeah. That the original series is an ensemble show, because somehow, like somebody came to the conclusion that three guys and a bunch of day players, like don't criticize <laughs> the day. Somehow summed there. up to an ensemble. I know. I'm, I'm begging. For there it. goes I'm another like, viewer. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just like, I'm trying to get to like the angry review. It's what I want. It's my goal. Um, but but, but next like generation like, was. It was. Next it was. It was. But what it really, what it became was because it had like Patrick Stewart, you know, at the center of it, it became a very captain driven show.
2: It became the and a Patrick very story driven
3: show. That's right. It became the Patrick and Brent show. I think Deep Space Nine was probably the show that was, that was truly the most ensemble in the sense that there were all of these characters who had these unique sort of points of view and personalities that you could build an episode around. Right. Um, but the uh, what i what i feel happening in this bible is holy shit we got to add characters we got to have something thing. And for we everybody in this or right. no one will like and, it and we have to engineer a rela- relationships that that want to develop now look that happens in every bible sure. right and like and no plan survives the first encounter with the enemy that that's one forecasting or or casting, right that's always true these things I, you know god we we've, we've all been through it we've all seen it happen but it's just, as a Star Trek fan and looking at it in the context of the, the success slash failures of each show um, in terms of developing those characters, I just think that it's it's interesting.
0: I think that was one of the smartest things that lost it uh, was um, that before they kind of locked their pilot, they just re- wrote these descriptions, then had people come in, then decided who they were gonna cast, and then wrote the script kind of around the people they wanted to cast it's -hmm. like you know it's like you know so you had hurley who came in for something completely different all these people that ended up getting cast in completely different roles i mean it completely changed the show and as all we know you know when you cast people um it's going to dramatically change your perception of these characters it's like when they said oh there'll be a lot of sexual tension between dax and cisco it's like yeah really Mm -hmm. um and you know even here one of the things is i actually I think, you know, uh, Rick Berman did a lot of really good things and a really lot of smart things. Mm-hmm. Um, w- w- one of the things, though, that I noticed is he tends to to, to um, favor really kind of bland actors. It's like he was a huge fan of the actor who played Malcolm Reed, right? He saw him for Voyager and didn't cast him, but put the picture aside because he knew he was doing Enterprise and really fell in love with this actor. It was the same thing. Look, one of his favorite actors of all time was Calmini. Meaney. Kalamini is a great actor, right? but he's not like a super dynamic actor. It's like he, there's a certain type. That's why a type of actor that he really, a really
2: he, solid character. Actor.
0: Yeah, he's yeah, yeah exactly. And um, so he, he, you know, I, I think he, he confuses sort of like uh, um, the Shatner type of acting. Like he thinks it's too big and too broad and, 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 and too uh, you know, whereas he likes, you know, more restraint, more, but for science fiction, that's death, you know, and, and I think if you if you go too small. So here's a description of Lieutenant Commander Malcolm Reed, British male, late 20s, armory officer in the new age of humanity's enlightenment. Reed is a bit of a throwback. I don't different. Uh, OK, he's a 22nd century soldier, all spit and polish and by the book, His, by the book, sir. His hair is cut. Hours would seem like razor tins. short. He maintains a rigorous daily schedule when he isn't on duty. He's working on a futuristic exercise apparatus. He keeps in his quarters or toiling slots into power, very like to interested see in it. What the, what the production designer would have created for that. Or to, toiling in the munitions lab, perfecting some kind of new torpedo. He's the antithesis of our chief engineer, Spike Tucker, who is undisciplined, a rebel of sorts. You could say he was a rebel with a cause. The two men are frequently at odds. Reed is always trying to expand his weapons inventory. We 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 know you said that already. Right. Storing ammunition in parts of the ship designated to engineering. Chucker is constantly finding photon grenades cluttering his Jeffries tube. They're just Can I me
3: far the gong here for a second. So <laughs> I've just gotta say, so first of all, right, like look, just just coming from the world that I come from, like as like um uh, as a as an army brat, as you know somebody who who worked in and among the uh, the the military, the navy, like for years, right? Like this to me reads like somebody's idea of what a uh, of what a military person is like versus somebody who's had like any experience military with them. Experience. Like number one, so it just I I react against it. But here's the thing that bugs me. <laughs> so can we just can we just focus on? Tucker is constantly finding photon grenades cluttering his Jeffries. I think the
0: idea, they're saying the ship is really small. It's not big like the old Enterprise. So like there's no like public storage. I don't know. So let me finish. Let me just read what the rest of this says. because We're almost done with this. Uh, Despite his near obsession (laughs) with regulations and munitions, he's also soft-spoken, shy, and awkward around women. When testing a new photon weapon... That's what she, <laughs> that's what she said. He's, he's liable to put on a pair of space space age earplugs because he doesn't like loud noises. Okay, continue. Because of those loud beam weapons, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, no. My point is, like, they had to write something that everyone had else to had two paragraphs, down. and they needed they two to- paragraphs, right. so they just wrote this stuff. Right.
3: I think when the Makos came in, that was kind of a better idea for what this was supposed to be. Ultimately, and we're just casting no shade against, you know, the actors, but it's just it it just it's one of those things we go, yeah, there's a good concept in you take somebody who's a pure military man and you like you put him, you know, on the bridge of the enterprise. And I think it gets to Michael's terrific pitch. Right. It's just how does that ultimately emerge as drama? And I don't know that it it necessarily does, at least in the in the first season or two.
1: I think what they were going for was kind of, you know, Alec Guinness, Bridge on the River Kwai, Stiff Upper Lip Type. Uh, it, it didn't quite, you know, Reed didn't necessarily come come across that way. And unfortunately, Alec Guinness was unavailable. Um, you know, <laughs> not to cast any dis, dis, you know, aspersions on Dominic uh, Keating, who played Reed. Uh, but he was very different. Uh, f- it, I never quite understood why his character uh, was the tactical officer. He, he seemed to be, uh, you know, he... he he didn't seem to want to be the first one to charge out the door with a with a phaser, uh, and to defend the ship. That just didn't quite you know fit him. He was he was he was more of a Basil Fawlty type. <laughs> <I
0: think. laughs> That's a totally agree. I, I I thought it was interesting when you find out that he's Section Thirty One and he has these mixed loyalties and all that was interesting. Sure. But you know the Malcolm Reed of those early seasons, uh, you know exactly. He's like the military guy and yet he's sort of a shrinking violet.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and I just felt like, you know, just really bland. And again, no, no fault of uh, of the actor. You know, I just, you know, a good actor. But, it, the, the, you know, there's nothing dynamic and larger than life about him. And I think to go in space, as we've seen, you need to be kind of larger than life. You know, a, an adventurer, uh, uh, you know, somebody who who's willing to put their life on Earth on hold to go be a rocket man.
1: Well, look, the t- previous Star Trek series, you know, there, you know, you you had you know, Warf on Deep Space Nine, and you had Worf on, on Next Gen. I mean, right. you know, that that is a tactical officer. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: No, I, look, abso- absolutely. I mean, and then they, you know, even in Voyager, you know, I guess the security officer was, was Tuvok. Sure. Yeah. So okay, so now um, uh, we also have Lieutenant Joe Mary uh, Mayweather, Joe Mayweather. Um, hey, Joe. Where are you going with that phaser in your hand? You want to read that, Michael? Tell us a little bit about Joe. Hey, Joe.
6: You're upside down, Ensign. Yes, sir. Can you explain why? When I was a kid, we called it the sweet spot.
4: Every ship's got one. Sweet spot? It's usually about halfway between the grab generator and the bow plate. Grab a hold of the hatch. No, 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 on either side. Now, push off. Push off. Wow.
6: Whoa! Uh, Takes practice. You ever slept in Zero-G?
4: Slept. It's just like being back in the womb.
6: <sighs> the captain tells me you've been to Trillius Prime. took fourth, fifth, and sixth grades to get there. I've also been to Dralax and both the Tenebian moons. I've only been to one inhabited planet besides Earth. Nothing there but dust well and ticks. I've heard the women on Dralax have three it's true. You know that firsthand. Firsthand, First-hand, second-hand, third-hand. I guess growing up a boomer has its advantages.
1: <laughs> Lieutenant Joe Mayweather, African-American, helmsman, mid-20s, a unique product of 22nd century life. Mayweather was raised on a long-range transport vessel. I was born and conceived during a two-year run somewhere between Alpha Centauri and Arcturus Prime. That's in quotes. As a result, Joe is more interstellar than even the captain. He's traveled to dozens of planets and met many different alien species. He even had a Torellian girlfriend at one point, which fascinates Spike Tucker to no end.
0: Everyone has, he's bad with women. You know, she's had a girlfriend. I mean, it's like, oh my
1: God. He likes aliens doing it. <laughs> Mayweather will prove to be a valued member of the crew, a talented pilot with an instinct for space travel that few humans possess. This will help Captain Archer through situations where intellect and protocol alone won't suffice. I skipped over a paragraph there. It's okay. <laughs> no, one no, less
0: no one noticed.
1: Yeah, it was always, you know, the, the the character of a helmsman on the show is, is a little bit of a, you know, a thankless task. I, You know, on the original... George Takei, you know, didn't always have a hell of a lot to do, but he was also he also controlled the phasers and the photon torpedoes most of he the time. He was a
2: damn good speedometer.
1: Exactly. He was. Look, here is the thing: all, all, all joking, all, all joking aside Old about about nine. George.
0: George made more out of that role than was there. You know, Absolutely. part you know part of it was mm-hmm. the distinctive voice. You know, just the fact that you know he shows up in the Naked Time with the sword. You know, immediately you are thinking it made him memorable. You know, yeah, so that's true. So I think that even though he wasn't really given much to do over the course of those three years, no fault of Bill Shatner's. Um, right. He remains, well, you know, people tend to think of him as a much bigger, more important role yeah. than he was. And because and, and that's a credit to George that he's and also a,
3: because of the movies.
0: I mean, look,
3: by the way, the um, the fact that that. You know, we're we're talking about George. At all, you're right. Is 100% a credit to how much personality he brought to it. Uh, that said, I think, in fairness to, you know, it was nobody's fault that you know he didn't have more to do. It was it was just not the format of
0: the show. There's no fifth the lead of, on Gunsmoke. You know, that's the right. kind of moves it's like, they were doing. Just, you
2: yeah, know, it's there's James Arness. If you if yeah. you get to be captain of another ship. You're not on the
0: show anymore. You're on That's right. Ship. It's like congratulations, you got promoted. We're was not always, go find out. That what was you always did. my favorite Shatner line. He's like, he always wanted to be promoted to captain, which meant he'd be on another ship and he'd be off the movie, out of the movies. I don't know why he wanted that. I, I, I was <laughs>
1: he wanted the spinoff. I, 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 can oh. I just love that? Can I
3: just say that I would be way more impressed with Joe May, Joe Mayweather if he had had a Tellerite girlfriend.
0: Yeah. Right. That would have yeah. been cool. Okay. Yeah, The um, other thing I got to yeah. say, and I'll let you go about uh, George, is like even in Return of the Archons, which was fairly early, he was memorable in that that look, you know, the whole, yeah. you know, when he he becomes flower-powered and, he, you know, he has that <laughs> yeah. smi- that disturbing smile and, you know, he's the MacGuffin and the teaser for yeah. them going down to the planet. Like, again, not a huge role for him, but he's memorable. So he made the most out of a small part. You know, mm-hmm. they, they say there's no such thing as small parts, only small right. actors. So, you know, he really needs to shut up and stop right. complaining.
3: And we all know, we all... Uh, and I'm sure you've talked about the fact that there are actors who act their way onto shows simply by showing up in small roles and being interesting. Yep. But we
2: all know it was Shatner's fault that George had to go off and do that John Wayne movie.
3: Right. And, it's, it's, and as a result, George Takei's life has been completely ruined by
0: Star Trek. Okay. I mean, we can all see it. Well, he, he missed out on so many great episodes by going and doing the green berets i mean he would have been in tribbles he would have been in so many of these episodes had he not hey had he not gone and done this part and then that went over schedule anyway but that's a, a whole he right. could have been somebody and look i love him politically i i, I you know i he, i think it's great that he's found another life as a political advocate but um an uh, advocate for social justice but as a sulu he got to stop begging on Shatner. Okay. So anyway, Michael, you were going to say, I'm sorry. My point
1: was <laughs> the, uh, the, the Helmsman is kind of a thankless uh, a job, I think on the, on the, on the format of a Star Trek show. It, like I, you guys are hundred percent right. George brought so much more to that. Um, but I think also because he was kind of the ship's tactical officer as well, he got a little more to do than, than he would have. But, you know, look at, look at next gen where, you know, once, you uh, you know, uh, Jordy got kicked down to engineering because the, the show decided, realized they needed an engineer. And it was kind of silly that they didn't have one from the very beginning, uh, which I think may have been born out of Roddenberry's belief that the Enterprise wasn't going to break down in the era of Next Generation. So why would- Well, he, would also, you
2: he also loved the idea of the Enterprise being piloted by a blind man.
1: That's yeah. not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. Um, but that you wouldn't make the engineer, uh, you know, a, a a core character on your show. None of the other series ever made that mistake again. But it was interesting to me that they brought back, you know, a, a helmsman as a main character. And yeah, by and large, whoever's playing the helmsman is is just saying, "I, I, captain. Uh, unless nope. uh, nope. unless I
0: disagree. It. The key to one of those, the whole key, I'll give you the secret. Sure. You got to be able to repeat phasers fire in a really cool way. When they kind of go, phasers fire, phasers fire, and they press the button. <laughs> and they, and they, and they, if you could do that, then you're awesome, right? That's the key to the whole show. I'm giving it away right now. <laughs> phaser's fire. That, I mean, it is there's an art to that. Some action, some under five who oh. has a couple of lines. They if they go phasers fire, phaser's firing full spread, phasers fire. that's not good. But if you go phaser's fire, like it, like man, like that thing is really firing phasers, and photon torpedoes. I'm with you. It's all about the oh, intensity. Firing you know, full spread, phasers, fire, full tractor Frito's, you know, it's like, oh, man. On our show, that was Reed's job, though. That
1: wasn't Mayweather's job, but I hear you. You're, you're not wrong. You're tell not. you while
0: well, I'm, I'm, I'm complaining about stuff. I am so sick of people not calling ships the Enterprise, the I Reliant. Agree. Everything's Enterprise. Or, or Reliant, she's lowered her shields. It's like, what happened to the? Do we not use that in the future? It's like yeah, all these kids right. with the tweeting where they want to use as few words as possible. I think I,
1: that's modern Navy par- parlance. Them. It's I, not it's call a ship. 100%, the.
0: not 100%. Well, not. it's just like they say, we've lost a hundred souls. I know it's, they say it. that in the Navy, yeah. but you know what? It's a hundred people.
3: Yeah. And it, the, the is still a thing. Promise it's still a thing. They, well, I, I'm I a big On the, on the Navy the
1: show that. I worked on, none of the ships were the. It was, it was it always didn't have the the so we we just we
3: always like called them that like in uh i mean i'm i, I mean just in conversation like just sitting around talking about where things were and how would you know that what?
1: kirk had been taken over by an alien entity if the person didn't open their communicator and say captain kirk to the enterprise i mean you know right there
0: no exactly and he's like right it's the intrepid captain she's dead not intrepid, it's intrepid, Captain Intrepid. What I don't know what that means. If it's the intrepid, you know they're talking about the ship. It's the Yorktown. You know, it, it, it's the Farragut. It's, it. The constellation. Yeah, the, the constellation. She's been destroyed. What if it was constellation? Oh, don't you are think you I know that? What constellation are you talking about? You know, Alpha Centauri, you're talking about this constellation. No, we're talking about the constellation. Jipper, damn it. Right, Captain, why wasn't there ever a USS Kirk Big Dipper? the
1: Enterprise. Captain Kirk to the
0: Enterprise. You never hear him say that. He never says it. I, I, I don't I think that's when you can trace Star Trek sort of going downhill when they drop the from the ships. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, so let's talk about Hoshisato. Darren, yes. if you would please uh, <laughs> the
1: explain. Hoshisato.
4: Glunkit, tak, negleat. Glunkit, tak, niklit. Carlos? Lootrinky. No, Crrrr. No, Lootrinky. kr. 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 Tighten the back of your tongue. Kr. 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 Keep trying. You've almost got it. I'll be right back. There's two more weeks before exams. It's impossible for me to leave now. You've got to have someone who can cover for you. If there was anyone else who can do what I do, you wouldn't be so eager to have me on your spaceship. Hoshi. I'm sorry, Captain. I owe it to these kids. I could order you. I'm on leave from Starfleet, remember? You would have to forcibly recall me, which would require a reprimand, which would disqualify me from serving on an active vessel. I need someone with your ear. And you'll have her in three weeks. What's that? Klingon. Ambassador Saval gave us a sampling of their linguistic database. I thought you said the Vulcans were opposed to this. They are, but we agreed to make a few compromises. What do you know about these Klingons? Not much. An empire of warriors with 80 polygutural dialects constructed on an adaptive syntax. Turn it up. Think of it. You'd be the first human to talk to these people. Do you really want someone else to do it?
2: (laughs) Ensign Hoshi Sato, calm officer, human. Very calm. Late 20s, Japanese. Striking and intelligent. Oh, she has a feisty spirit that often tests the patience of the crew. She's in charge of communication systems on the Enterprise, but she also serves as ship's translator,
0: an expert in exolinguistics. She learned to As manipulate- the ship's translator. Not as ship's translator. It says even here. But she also serves as ship's translator. As the ship's translator. The definite
2: article. She learned to manipulate her vocal cords to emit a range of alien sounds no human Look like Daryl Hannah and
3: Splash.
0: <laughs> really funny, awesome. <laughs> Except oh, she, on Disney Plus, they cut that out.
2: Oh, she has a natural affinity for picking up languages. Hey, language. No, uh, give her. <laughs> Give her 10 minutes with a Klingon and she'll be chatting
0: about the weather on Kwonos. Well, that's five minutes longer than it took Chekhov and Ahura to read that Klingon in Star Trek 6. Uh, Nuclear whistles.
2: Universal translator technology is a work in progress. It malfunctions, often missing the nuance of alien grammar and syntax. So Hoshi must always (laughs) be prepared to step in and act as intermediary. Hoshi doesn't like the idea of being trapped in a tin can hurtling at impossible speeds. Every time the Enterprise jumps to warp, she grips her console and closes her eyes. She's a white knuckle spacefarer. Hoshi and T'Pau are like oil and water. Hoshi loves to tweak the Vulcan, get her to show emotion. This unlikely duo will share a conflictual relationship, but in the field, They'll be like sisters. They die for each other.
0: Now I would have loved to have seen that relationship. I'd love to see the tweaking and I'd love to see
4: <laughs>
0: love Stop to with see the tweaking. I'd love to see them be like that's interesting. They, they you know, they they spar with each other, but they I mean, yeah, it's Spock and McCoy, right? But I would have loved to have seen that between the two of them. But there was no relationship, to the best of my knowledge, between the two of them. Now I understand that might have had something to do with the actress, but I don't know. Mike, any insight you can give us into into this description of those characters?
1: Uh, nope. I got nothing. <laughs> do I you think I, theoretically you think that's an interesting description? Uh, look, I I don't look. You know, some of the few yeah, should even have a communication. Oh. Answer me, no. You know, I I, yeah. I look. I, I I, I love Linda I thought she did a you know a, a, you know the, the best she could do with uh, you know the material she was given I think she had a, you know a couple of good episodes I think it got old very quickly the idea of her being this sort of white knuckled space explorer yeah, absolutely. instead of being instead of being like a very grounded relatable thing to the audience it just kind of became annoying and again that wasn't it wasn't the actress's fault at all and we course corrected well, you know with her pretty quickly but that kind of left you know that was at least that was an aspect of her personality I don't know that we replaced that mm-hmm. with with anything equally interesting but less annoying um so it was you know it was it was it was again it was another character who often said you know 55 years ago Michelle Nichols was complaining about only having to say hailing frequencies open and that was exactly uh you know the the predicament that I think Uh, Linda fell into and that we as writers fell into her her character deserved more and deserved better.
0: It's interesting. It's similar to what happened with Bashir in the fact that what was uh, written initially or uh, for Bashir, that he was young and naive and a puppy dog. and, And then they realized rather quickly that that wasn't working. And, but when they course corrected, they went in a more interesting direction. It seems they went through the same thing with Hoshi, but you're right. I mean, the whole idea of someone, who's embarking on a space voyage, being afraid of being in space, not, you know, given that Star Trek often works best when it's aspirational, not a great look, as they say, for this character, but there was no real course correction. It was just abandoning some of this early, uh, you know, ideas for the character. But the problem that you've got, right, and this, again, gets back to
3: the difference between the original series and then how I think some of these later Bibles attempted to capture what it was doing is, it's very difficult, I think, to say, you know what we're going to do today, kids? We're going to build an episode around the freaking communications officer, mm-hmm. right? Because every story that you encounter when you're spacebound, right? And Michael, you can certainly speak to this much better than I can. But it's like, I, I, you know, on some level, you're, the heart of your show is always going to be your captain, right? All the big decisions are ultimately going to come down to that. I think one of the reasons why Deep Space Nine got away with it was because the, the hidden advantage of sitting there was that there was a lot of shit they could get into in B and C stories, right? That didn't depend on the decision that the captain was making in the A story, right? So there's a little more room to move. And I think, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the simple fact, like, the simple fact that, that these characters had opportunities at all, to have moments, I think, is a is a testament to the effort to do it right. It's just it's just harder, I think, in this context. It's just one of those things you learn. Like there's a half life to the joke about Hoshi not wanting to fly around in space. After a while, you get it, and you don't want to see it again.
1: Yeah, for sure. I you know I think it uh, as pointed out earlier, you know the troika of you know Kirk Spock and Bones was recreated here, uh, which you know is certainly an interesting way to go. I think they may have, you know, we may have copied too much from the original, Um, you know, Nichelle Nichols, obviously a a beloved, you know, cast member of of the original show did not just, didn't get a lot to do. And I, and I think, you know, giving that job to another actor all these years later, we didn't, we didn't do, we didn't do enough thinking I think ahead of time about how we would make sure we didn't fall into that trap and how to make her, how to make her uh, unique and different and make her an integral part of the show. I think
0: um, if you listen to Leonard Nimoy talk about the original show, he always called it a meritocracy. And I think it's true. These people were all the best of the best, right? They were really good at what they did. And I think that's an important lesson to learn from the original Star Trek because I think if you look at the shows that, or the characters that didn't work as well, they were less competent. I think, you know, they're great for the guest star who comes on and maybe, you know, is new and and, and a little rough around the edges and having difficulty, you know, like... <laughs> Uh, what was it? Uh, Lucia Naf's character in Q who, um, you know, uh, you know the, the people that you know who, who like works under Jordy and is like nervous around the captain. Sonia Gomez. Sonia Gomez, right. right? And and it's like it's 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 the same for a lot of these characters. They're like more guest stars, you know, like or, or lower decks or something like that. I don't mean the animated series, the the Next Generation episode. So, um, but you know, you expect people on the bridge to be like super competent, right? And that's something we love to see because in life, a lot of people aren't that competent. So we love to see a show that's aspirational. Like, this really is the best of the best. And I, I still I think it's a problem going into a show where a bunch of the characters, you know, Malcolm Reed is like really a fuddy-duddy and he, he's bad with women and he's like, uh, he's not, you know, comfortable around his weapons or, you know, and then, you know, she's afraid to be in space. You know, it's okay if you're Bill Shatner flying on a, you know, a Blue Origin rocket. But it, it, if you're, you know, in the 22nd century on a spaceship and you've committed to this life in space, you're not going to be that nervous. Right. So
3: we like to see people who, I mean, look, we like to see people who are competent at their job. And also like it's, there is something about the, I'm a, you know, white knuckle spacefarer that suggests that the character doesn't actually want to be in the show. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something about that that can be, off-putting. So it was a good choice to kind of move away from it. Again, could be funny. Yeah. Like the first time, right. just sort of capture that moment of, wow, this is
0: a big deal. Right. But like, once you get past that,
3: she just, just,
0: it's funny in the pilot. Else. And then somebody yeah. has to have a talk with her. i say, you know, you're really good at what you do. I, I, you know, I brought you here because I knew I could count on you. And, and if this does kill us, it will be really quick. And then, and, and she, and then she's fine. But know, the character
2: needs to have some kind of decision where they overcome that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Quickly.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I talked at the very beginning of the show about how this wasn't just a prequel, it was a sequel. And, um, you know, the last few pages of the Bible discussed the Sulaban and uh, uh, the temporal Cold War, which ended up becoming a very important part of, um, initially, of Enterprise, until it was sort of rejiggered with... Um, uh, you know, the, the expanse. Um, so I'm hoping, Darren, if you could just walk us through um, this uh, last part of the Bible, which is about the Suluban, um And it, it, you'll see that this mythology evolved a lot from what's in the Bible. And then, Mike, if you can lend us some insight into your thoughts about what worked and what didn't about the uh, temporal Cold War and the Suleban.
2: Let's learn about the Suleban Cabal. An alien cult devoted to genetic enhancement, the Suliban ruthlessly carry out the wishes of an unseen leader from the distant future. The Suliban will be a recurring villain on Enterprise. Acquiring the ability to regenerate damaged limbs and organs to survive in the vacuum of space, to change sexes in the blink of an eye, or even to disguise oneself like a chameleon are all potential payments. In order to accelerate their own evolution, The Sulaban have made a deal with the devil, deformity in return for devotion. Think of them as a futuristic island of Dr. Moreau. The Sulaban are a nomadic species. Nobody paid much attention to their relatively primitive culture. They're roughly equivalent to humans. That is, until Archer and his crew discover that the Sulaban have evolved into something else. They now possess highly advanced genetic engineering techniques, high warp vessels, plasma-based engines and other sophisticated technology that should have been centuries beyond their reach. Archer learns that the Suliban are under the influence of someone from a distant century who is providing them with technology in exchange for what? We don't know. But we do learn that it involves a temporal cold war. And for some reason, the 22nd century is a front of this conflict. Uh, The Suliban will provide us with a terrifying new species with strange new abilities, and because of their connection to a distant century, they will give us a tantalizing glimpse of a future Star Trek that doesn't yet exist. Our goal is to keep the Suliban mysterious, never fully explain them, and keep the audience guessing about the temporal Cold War conspiracy. Uh, One last paragraph. In the course of the series, we will meet many aliens, both familiar and new. Uh, However, some species we've come to know over the years will be quite different in the 22nd century. Klingons, for example, will be far more primitive than those Picard and Janeway will know. They've not yet given up the practice of sharpening their teeth or eating the hearts of their enemies.
0: So, Michael, what what do you think when you hear this? Do you feel like uh, this was an interesting template and do you feel it was executed well or... Um, you know, just looking back, what, what are your thoughts? I, I,
1: I love everything that's, that's, that's here. I think this is a great concept, you know, for a, a Star Trek villain. I, I will say the you know, the, probably the only thing harder than, you know, writing a Star Trek Bible, I would imagine, is, is creating a, a memorable Star Trek villain species who's going to warrant, uh, you know, being featured in, in multiple episodes. Uh, I, for some reason, I think the, you know, the, the Sullivan didn't quite uh, gel. Um, for reasons i'm not you know entirely uh certain of um you know we had a an actor uh by the name of i think john john fleck who who played uh you know the the lead bad guy the lead uh Suluban in the pilot who was good and, re- and i think he played like eight different aliens over over the course of uh, all the some of the those series um but you know, Enterprise also, I mean, Sulaban, I'm sure, sounded like a cool futuristic name when we came up with it. But two weeks before Enterprise premiered, 9-11 happened and yeah. <laughs> it was it ended up being kind of an, an unfortunate name for an alien species, even if they were also, you know, if they were going to be the villains of the piece. Um, and, you know, e- Enterprise... Yeah, This is a little, little bit of you know a, a sidetrack here, but you, I, I think the show was really at sea for much of those first two seasons uh, in that we weren't exactly sure how to respond to 9-11 dramatically. Do we just ignore it, which I think was the first incentive, let's just make the show we were going to make, until it kind of became so overwhelming that not only our show, but practically every show on television felt the need to address it. Um, and I don't think the Suluban as conceived really fit into where the show ultimately needed to go. Even in this document, they're they're kind of being puppeteered by a greater bad guy who we ultimately never really did see. So I, I think that element was also, uh, you know, working against them. Yeah.
0: I, I look, I, I think I agree with everything you said. I, I actually think it's a, it was a great idea. I think it's still a great idea. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of a lot of missed opportunities. I actually was a big fan of John Fleck from a show called Murder One uh, with Daniel Benzali, which I thought was a, a great series. And he was he was really good at it. Very, very different character. Uh, what, yeah. do, what do you guys think? Where, where where did you fall in the temporal Cold War slash Suleiman? Well, I love,
3: you know, like Michael said, it's like, I love what's in the document, like how it's laid out. It's also pretty clear to me that like my, my BS detector goes off like on the temporal cold war in terms of just, yeah, they had no idea. Like it, like it's, I'm fairly certain that, that Brandon didn't have an idea of like, of what was honestly behind that, which by the way, I don't care. That's fine. Right. Because you can get a lot of stories out of that. That's cool. Right. You don't have to identify the guy. I mean, you know, it's, it's okay that you don't, as long as, our encounters with these guys are scary and cool, but they kind of follow like, you know, this very long list of aliens who on paper should have been cool. Right. right? Like the Ferengi, hopefully they find you as
0: tasty as they did their last associates, right? What? You know, or the Vidians, right? Well, these sounded a lot like the Vidians in this description. And I have to say, I thought those were one of the more interesting um, races yeah, invented for any of the Star Trek series, but totally. It's certainly the first t- time we saw Triumph for Voyager. <laughs> yeah,
3: right. It's like, but but this is kind of like it's just that thing where we're sort of asserting these things. I think instead of just living inside of them and 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 letting them evolve a little bit. I also kind of wonder if like, look, the makeup on this show, on the Star Trek shows, was always like top tier, one hundred percent, totally amazing. But I kind of wonder if the if the Suleiman design didn't, in some ways, like just just hamper the way that they came across. Like there was just something about the physical design that made them less scary. I don't know. They look
1: like guys had been dipped in green oatmeal, basically. Yeah,
3: pretty much. Which is like you know, if you've got a terror of green oatmeal, sure.
5: Yeah, less is more
0: probably with them yeah yeah it's a good it's a good point well i think it's really interesting here 20 years after the premiere enterprise you know we're going back and and we're looking at it and you know in in so many ways enterprise is such an interesting um uh case to look at because uh you know it did so much right and so much wrong and um you know uh, uh you know cut short after four seasons and sort of victim of star trek overkill and and um so it's very well, interesting. a
2: good title for a show. Star Trek Star
0: Overkill, um, you know, and and here, <laughs> but here, twenty years later, uh, there are a lot of people. It's their favorite show. It's their favorite sure. Star Trek, and uh, um, you know, certainly, I think we saw at the Vegas convention um, that there's still a huge fan base for for Enterprise. It's you know, it's a testament, you know, whatever. Um, the the mistakes that, you know, obviously there were a lot of things that were done right. And just Bible pro- provided the foundation for for a show that has stood the test of time.
1: For sure. And, you know, if we'd gotten seven years, I, I think uh, the, the show would have continued to deliver at that level. And, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows how it would be remembered today? Yeah. Uh, it's certainly, you know, my years on that show were among the, the best I've ever had as, as a writer and the, the most fun. Uh, so I have nothing but fond memories of that show and the people and everything associated with it.
0: Yeah, a lot of great people worked on that series. Chris Black, Dave Goodman, Manny, I mean, really great group of people, and, uh, you know, there's some some classic episodes, many of which uh, you wrote, so um, it's, it's really interesting to look back, and, um, and it, it, it's just, it, for any aspiring writers listening to the show, it, it, it you know look look at all these bible episodes as um instructive you know for for and also seeing you know how far these shows come from their initial beginnings you know it's it's like what what's the expression i i think you may have even said it during the show you know uh as soon as uh um, a battle plan meets the enemy uh, you know um, no
3: plans survives the first encounter with the enemy yeah. it just It's it's the big suggestion that helps everybody get their other suggestions in
1: order. Right. You had mentioned earlier the, uh, the, the Bible for the lost or for the series lost and and the casting process. Uh, There's a, there's a lost writer's guide floating out there on on the internet. I don't know if you've ever seen it where one of the, uh, one of the early uh, descriptions in it uh, that JJ Abrams and uh, uh, Damon Lindelof wrote was our greatest challenge on Lost is presenting compelling stories. Since the show is not serialized, our episode structure demands fresh plots every week. <laughs> wow. That was the original premise for Lost. <laughs> you know, the, the, the battle plan meets the enemy and everything changes. So you, you just never know what show you're going to end up with. Well, it was mm-hmm. just so
0: funny because the whole uh, um, genesis of Lost was the network head coming to JJ and saying, we want to do Survivor as a scripted series. You know, um, and and basically, it became lost, and it's 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 and then remarkable. It became lost. So, um, but it is really interesting, and we are going to close out our series on the Bibles of Star Trek with Genesis, the original series Bible, um, which we'll return to a, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but uh, I think this has been really interesting and and very instructive. It's been and, fun, <laughs> and we all learned a very important lesson in creating science fiction.
2: We've never been death, discard
0: the the, never
3: discard the the. Don't discard the the. Also, don't make anybody, don't make anybody the helmsman.
5: <laughs> and always
3: have an engineer. So <laughs> always have an engineer.
0: I want to, I want to, I want to thank uh, Bill Ritter, the great Bill Ritter. Uh, for always making it sound so good here on zoom. Um, our producer, co-producers, Peter Holmstrom, Zach Raggett, and of course, um, uh, Natalie Miscali. And uh, I want to encourage you to continue as uh sending your your thoughts about the show and your your anger and hate and, and makes you stronger um, to uh our Instagram, Twitter, and uh Facebook pages in uh Inglorious Trexperts. Uh listen to our sister podcast as well. And of course the Trexperts briefing room, where you'll be able to join Peter and Lisa in the briefing room for a very special uh um commentary um on Lord Dex with um the uh one of the writers. Um from that series, whose name is M. Willis, Maybe. M. Willis, M. Willis. What you talking about, Willis? And we'll find out when we listen to that episode. But this was really fun. I want to thank uh, Michael and uh, Ashley uh, for joining Darren and I for another deep dive into the Bibles of Star Trek. And until next week, until next week. Yes. Keep on trekking. And gloriously, the Of Course.
4: It's been a long road
0: Getting
5: from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally here And I can feel the change in the way right now
4: Nothing's in my way i